Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Thank you all so, so, so much for joining us. Our goal really is to bring together the good forces in the dog world, empower them with our skills, which is technology, among others, and then really, really just look to bringing together the best experts in the fields and in all the relevant fields. So that, I think, really underscores how we just could not be more excited for today, which I think is such an awesome example of truly two of the absolute leaders and legends in the dog world in different areas. And Dr. James Serpell, who just joined us. Great to see you, Dr. Serpell. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Serpell obviously needs absolutely no introduction. He literally wrote the book on understanding dog behavior and human interactions, the domestic dog, which is still used, as I'm sure you all know, as the foundation for behavior with canines and our interactions with them. He also just incredibly co-created the first canine behavior evaluation tool that can be utilized for breeders, Seabark, and that is an awesome, awesome tool that can be used in your breeding programs. He also founded the International Society for Anthrozoology, which is committed to the scientific study of human-animal interactions. He's currently a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the director of the Center for the Interaction of Animals and Society. Honestly, his resume is too long for me to go into here, but just absolutely such an honor and a privilege to have you here. Dr. Serpel, truly one of the founding fathers in canine behavior and our interactions with dogs, and it's just really amazing. So thank you so, so much for joining us. And then we also incredibly lucky to have Dr. Chris Sink, who also has too many degrees and articles and all of that for me to mention. Female veterinarian of the year, really one of the world's top canine sports medicine and rehab veterinarians and researchers and somehow also in her spare time has a full-time job, works as a virologist at Johns Hopkins for over 30 years on the HIV AIDS epidemic. So just Absolutely incredible. Lots of accolades from the Dog Writers Association of America. We truly, truly could not be more privileged to have you both here with us today and to talk about such important topics. So we'll go ahead and dive into things. Love to kick things off with Dr. Serpel talking a little bit about Seabark and how dog breeders can use that as a tool and then diving into the really, really important and ever-evolving topic of spay-neuter. And, you know, it's obviously been a controversial subject and people have all different sorts of opinions on it. And the research is still ongoing, as the experts will tell you about, but such a critical part of a breeding program and decisions that breeders make. So, so important to know about the current studies and the current information and what we're seeing out there. So, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I will turn it over. Dr. Judy Stella, who is our head of screening and standards, will be leading a Q&A type interview with them to hear about CBARC. Welcome, Dr. Spell, Dr. Zink. Thanks so much for being here. I am excited for this discussion. It's a topic I'm really interested in, and I do think it's an important one. So like Kat said, before we get started talking about spay and neuter, 
we'd like to ask you, Dr. Serpel, to talk a little bit about CBARC, the tool that you developed, and how it's being used in canine research, and then also how breeders could utilize it in their breeding programs. Certainly, yes. So the CBARC is a survey instrument. It's a questionnaire, essentially, that was developed to enable dog owners and dog handlers to perform very standardized evaluations of their dog's behavior. It was originally developed, actually, using as a model the kinds of questionnaires that psychologists have developed to get, for example, parents to evaluate their children. Um, So that was the sort of model that I used to develop it because my thinking was most of these animals are living in people's homes, often in the same kind of general role as children. So it made sense to ask the owners if they could actually do an accurate evaluation of that animal's behavior. Anyway, that was many years ago. The first um, description of the CBARC was published in 2003. And we then made it available online to pet owners and various dog organizations. And that's been the case since about 2005. And it's just been gradually accumulating behavioral records on dogs. We now have records on over 50,000 pet dogs and about 40,000 working dogs in this database, which is a fairly remarkable source of knowledge and information about dogs and enables us to be fairly precise in the sort of claims we can make about dogs and their behavior. As a research tool, it's very widely used. I think there are now over 100 published studies that have used the CBARC for one study or another, and they cover the full range of studies that you can imagine, including evaluating the dog survivors of the Fukushima earthquake in Japan to much more mundane studies looking at the influence of diet on behavior or the influence of castration or neutering on behavior. So a huge range of different types of studies that have made use of this instrument, which is very gratifying. In addition, it's used by a lot of working dog organizations, guide dog organizations, service dog organizations to evaluate their puppies at particular ages prior to training. And this information, it turns out, is quite useful for predicting how likely some of these dogs will be successful in training and go on to become actual working assistance dogs. We have also got a number of breeders using it now to evaluate their puppies after they're sold. So the breeder is sending a request out to the owners of their puppies to complete this evaluation sometimes a year or two after the puppy has been sold. And it's a way for the breeders to get feedback about how their puppies are doing behaviorally, which may inform their breeding decisions in the future, but also gives them an opportunity maybe to help those owners to deal with specific behavioral issues that might be developing in those puppies later on. So it's finding a very wide range of uses now, which to be honest, I didn't anticipate when I developed it. I was developing it primarily to to try and understand what the range of behavior was out there in the dog population. And really the only way to do that on a mass scale is to develop something like a questionnaire. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for giving us a little background on that. And we'll come back to Seabark a little bit later in the discussion when we talk about some of the research looking at behavior and gonadectomy. So now let's dive into the spay-neuter discussion. It's interesting because in the early mid-80s or so, when shelters and veterinarians really started to take seriously the unwanted pet population and the associated high amnesia rates is when one of the practices that they encouraged 
pet owners and in the shelters was this early spay neuter and it just became really accepted practice part of responsible pet ownership everyone got their dogs spayed and neutered but recently there's been some research that's starting to question those practices and whether or not that's actually in the best interest either from the health perspective as well as the behavioral perspective so that's what we're really going to talk about today so I want to start with Dr. Zink. Let's talk a little bit about some of the research looking at health associations and gonadectomy. And I wanted to start with one of your areas of expertise, which is orthopedic conditions. So can you just tell us a little bit about what we know about orthopedic conditions and stay in neuter? Yeah, I want to just give a little bit of background to this because I know that when I went to vet school many, many decades ago, it was already in the 70s considered standard practice to spay and neuter dogs. And I think there were a couple of studies back then that were done that showed it was safe to spay or neuter a dog at a young age. And in particular, it sort of became standard practice to spay and neuter dogs at six months of age. That changed over time when there was a big move towards spaying and neutering dogs at a much younger age before they ever left a rescue organization. And since many of those rescue organizations were sending out puppies, etc., then there started to be a move towards earlier and earlier spaying and neutering. And so that's sort of the history of it. And I think one of the things that in science we have to be very careful about is a cognitive error that we very commonly make. And that is that if we make a decision that we believe is scientifically sound, we decide this is the way to do something, we kind of stop investigating it. And so in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was decided Spaying and neutering is the standard for pet dogs. And then people stopped investigating it, really. And it was only in the later years, like in the last couple of decades, where people have started to look at it more carefully and realize a few things. And one of the things that I realized early on was, so back in 1985, I got a golden retriever puppy. I was having a seriously difficult time deciding between two puppies. They both looked the same. They both acted the same. You know, I wanted to make a really good decision. Actually, one of them ate poop, and so I chose the other one. But it turns out that my dog ate poop, too, so that wasn't very predictive. But in any case, that's the one that I chose. And then when I met the other litter mate at the age of two, my golden retriever, who was intact, just because my family had never neutered anything, my golden retriever looked like a golden retriever, and his looked like a tall, skinny, weirdly hairy thing that just didn't really look very much like a golden retriever. And I was stunned. At first, I thought, oh, good, I picked the right one. But what it really was, as I started to realize over the next few years, is that his dog had been neutered at six months of age. I started to look into the orthopedic effects of spaying and neutering and what the effect of the hormones is. And so we know that the gonadal hormones, whether that's estrogen or testosterone, help to close the growth plates, which are the areas of the bone that's making new bone and allowing the bone to grow longer. And the thing about the closure of those growth plates is that it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in a sort of sequential basis with some bones closing as early as three and four months and others as late as 14 or 16 months, depending on a lot of factors. But it turns out that if you remove those gonadal hormones from the dog, those growth plates close later. And that's been shown scientifically. And so what you end up with is a dog that doesn't have the coordinated synchronous closure of growth plates that makes them look genetically like whatever breed they were going to be, but rather 
delays the closure of some growth plates for a longer period of time. Now, it's really interesting because as the science started to evolve, we started to see particularly studies coming out showing that there was more problems with cranial cruciate ligament injury and hip dysplasia, some other issues like patellar luxation that were really orthopedic issues that were much more common in dogs that were spayed or neutered, and particularly spayed or neutered young. And so in particular, I'd like to highlight cranial cruciate ligament injury, which is something that a lot of us are aware of and which we know is quite common in dogs. And that is, it's a knee problem. It's a problem at the stifle. And it's very expensive to get the surgery to try to stabilize that joint, usually in the range of about $4,000 each knee. And so there are actually now eight studies showing that this problem is more common in dogs that are spayed or neutered. Well, it's very interesting to me that one of the last growth plates to close in the dog is at the site where that cranial cruciate ligament inserts on the bone. And so what we're really doing is we're changing the conformation of the stifle. And so that's probably one of the reasons why we see that. But there have been a number of publications in the last, say, 10 to 15 years showing increased incidence of orthopedic problems in many of the larger breeds. So there's been a study in German Shepherds, one in Labs, one in Golden Retrievers, one in Vigilas. So a lot of the actually more common, I mean, Labs is the most common breed we have, German Shepherds, Golden Retrievers, etc. And so it looks like, at least in the large breed dogs, Spaying and neutering prior to puberty increases the incidence of orthopedic problems. And these are pretty significant in a lot of dogs. So that's very important. So I'll talk about my own study myself. So the Visual Club of America and many breed clubs have done similar things. They set up a retrospective study to look at a wide variety of illnesses and diseases, etc., that occur in their breed so that they would know how to direct any funds that they have that they want to direct to research, they would know what research to support based on the conditions that occur in their own breed. Well, the Vigla Club of America did it particularly well because they actually hired a professional statistics company to design their questionnaire and to evaluate it. Many breed clubs just sort of do it ad hoc and ask a bunch of questions, but this club did it really well. Well, When they got their results, they actually found that there was an increased incidence of cancer and behavior problems, as well as some orthopedic problems, but cancer and behavior problems predominantly in visualists that had been spayed or neutered. And they contacted me because they knew that I had been talking about some of these orthopedic issues. And I said to them, you know, hey, I really wish you had asked in the survey what age the dogs were spayed or neutered. So we could have, as veterinarians, we could know what to recommend for when the dog should be spayed or neutered because at that time I really believed that all dogs should be spayed or neutered regardless of any other factors. And they said, oh yeah, we asked that question, we just didn't analyze it. So I kind of directed their statisticians and told them to analyze it based on groups of dogs, whether they were spayed or neutered at or before six months of age between six months of age and 12 months of age, after 12 months of age, or remained intact. And in their study, they actually had equal numbers of males and females in each of those groups pretty well. So that was kind of cool. So we looked at that, and in, I think it was 2014, I published the study. 
the results were astounding to me because what they showed was that actually, regardless of the age at which the dog was spayed or neutered, those that did have their gonads removed had a higher incidence of all cancers, as well as the most common cancers in Vigilas, which were all essentially very serious causes of cancer, including hemangiosarcoma, lymphoma, mast cell tumors, and then all cancers in general. So that was really astounding. It didn't seem to matter then what age they were neutered at. Dr. Z, Uh, can I ask a question? When you say increased risk, can you talk about what that magnitude looks like? What are we talking about here? Well, I'll give you an example. So we're talking about an odds ratio here, which is, let's say, if we compare dogs, I'll give one of the specific examples. That's pretty scary. So let's look at lymphoma. So lymphoma, it's a fatal cancer. Dogs can go into remission for a while, but they'll recover. They'll relapse. Right. So when you compare, for example, vigilas that were spayed or neutered after 12 months of age, and you compare that to dogs that were left intact, there was more than a five times chance, so 500% greater risk of getting lymphoma in that group of spayed or neutered dogs as compared to intact dogs. And that's a lot, 500% chance. And when you consider the fact, for example, one of the things that veterinarians have always thought about is, well, there's this high risk of mammary cancer. Well, the risk of getting mammary cancer is actually, you know, 26% higher, not 500% higher like lymphoma. And in fact, in that study, there were actually a small number of dogs that did have mammary cancer, and none of them died of it. Mammary cancer is a cancer that, if caught early, is oftentimes curable, but not so much for cancers like mast cell cancer and hemangiosarcoma. Now, the other thing that was really interesting was looking at males and females. In all of our groups, there was no difference in males or females except for hemangiosarcoma. And so in hemangiosarcoma, for bitches that were spayed after 12 months of age, they had an 11 and a half, so 1,150% times higher risk of getting hemangiosarcoma than a bitch that was left intact. And you think about that. It was not true for males, actually. You know, you think about that and you realize that I would much rather have a dog have mammary cancer that I can identify early and remove surgically than hemangiosarcoma, which is a very disastrous disease, whether it occurs on the heart or the spleen or somewhere else. So my findings were supported by subsequent research by the hearts at California, where they looked much more specifically at Labrador retrievers, golden retrievers, and German shepherds. Now, I understand, I haven't seen it published, but I understand that those findings in cancer may not also follow through for smaller breeds. And the smaller breeds, they're not as high risk of cancer in any case. We know that cancer is more common in the larger breeds of dogs. But what this really reveals is, I think the most important thing is not the specifics of whether we're talking about a Vigla or a Lab or whatever breed of dogs we're talking about, or even the fact that we know that they have a greater risk of cancer. What I think that this points out is that we need to be always evaluating the evolving science. And I really like the way you said it, Judy, these evolving issues, an evolving field. And so we can't make that cognitive error where back in the 60s and 70s, we thought we had it solved. Yeah, spay and neuter everything. Rather, we have to start to make 
individual decisions as veterinarians, individual decisions for each dog based on its breed, based on the owner's knowledge, based on the home environment, and many other factors that bring things together. And I think Dr. Serpel is going to mention this as well when he starts to talk about behavior because behavior is a very multifaceted feature. And there are many things that the CBARC questionnaire asks about the home environment that can help us make better decisions too. So I want to just touch on one more aspect of health before we get into the behavior a little bit. One of the other things that is a huge problem in dog population is obesity. And in fact, I looked it up last night in the the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. Their latest statistics from 2019 say that like 55.8% of dogs are overweight or obese. And there is this link with spay neuter and obesity as well. And also all the other negative consequences of being obese, the inflammatory response, diabetes. Can you touch a little bit on that too? Like what do we know about that gonadectomy and how that impacts obesity? Right. So we know the science is out there showing that dogs that have had their gonads removed, their metabolic rate declines quite significantly, like by 30 to 35%. When the metabolic rate declines, then the dog doesn't need as many calories to maintain that themselves. And so one of the big errors is that people, you know, they're feeding their dog a certain amount of food and that's maintaining the dog just fine. And then when that dog has its gonads removed, now it doesn't need that much food. And so obesity surfaces. There's probably more to it than that, but that we know for sure. There are probably other factors to becoming obese. For example, We know that there's this whole food in, energy out, the calories in, calories out kind of formula, but there probably are also individual breed-related factors. For example, in Labrador retrievers, we know that there are genetic mutations that are associated with obesity, and so there's probably much more to it than just calories in and calories out. But I'll mention that actually a number of those orthopedic studies, you could say, well, maybe these dogs that are spayed or neutered are more at risk for developing orthopedic problems because they're obese. But several of them used obesity as a factor. They ruled that factor out in terms of their orthopedic findings. So I think that the orthopedic findings still stand regardless of whether obesity is another factor as well. And that's good that you touched on that as well, because obesity then also predisposes them to orthopedic conditions. Correct. Regardless of the spay-neuter thing, yeah. Okay, that was great. I think now I would like to switch to the discussion on behavior. And so, Dr. Serpel, can you give us just a little insight into how the gonadal hormones impact dog behavior? Yes. And like Chris, I want to emphasize that, you know, our knowledge in this area is constantly evolving. And we need to get away from the idea that somehow gonadal hormones are only about sex. So these hormones have very diverse effects throughout the body of the animal, including its brain and its nervous system. And they substantially impact development in many, many areas. So we need to get away from this idea that we can just like eliminate one aspect of behavior by gonadectomizing a male dog or a female dog. It's really, um, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. The other interesting thing about this is that You know, it became dogma that all dogs essentially should be spayed and neutered, but based on no evidence whatsoever. It was just, again, this assumption, oh, well, if we do this, we'll get rid of all those undesirable behaviors associated with reproduction. 
But nobody really did a decent study to actually find out whether that was the case. And in, surprisingly, still nobody has done the definitive study, which would involve, you know, randomly assigning dogs to gonadectomy groups and non-gonadectomy groups and actually following their development. That has never been done. It's extraordinary in many ways that people have been practicing this for so long without doing the initial science to see what the behavioral outcomes would be, what the health outcomes would be, and so on. But there we are, there we are. So the studies we've done really are centered again around the sea bark and simply looking at behavioral differences between populations of dogs that have been neutered or sterilized for non-behavioral reasons. So we took the animals where the owner actually had a behavior problem and then had the animal sterilized. We took those out, just looked to the ones who did it for birth control reasons, essentially, and populations of intact dogs of similar breeds and, and so on. And the findings from those studies are quite interesting. You know, the results depend very much on the type of study and what they actually looked at. For example, we did some studies with Paul McGreevy in Australia, male and female dogs separately, and looking at what we call a percentage lifetime exposure to gonadal hormones. In other words, the amount of time that elapsed between when the dog was sterilized and when the owner completed the CBOC. So we did all this CBOC data. We just crunched the numbers, essentially. And the striking thing was that, especially in male dogs, practically all of the behaviors we looked at were worse in the neutered males. And it was about 25 different behaviors. And they all went in an undesirable direction. The magnitude of the change wasn't huge. So it ranged from something like a 5% change to a 12% change in these behavioral parameters. But nevertheless, it was very striking that they all went in the same direction, with the exception of two behaviors. I think one was marking indoors, which is very much linked to testosterone. And strangely enough, howling, howling behavior is more pronounced in intact male dogs than it is the sterilized ones. In females, the effects were not quite so marked, but there was still the same kind of general trend, particularly for fearfulness and aggression that tended to increase in the female dogs. So this is very, very potentially alarming when you consider how widely these procedures are practiced on dogs everywhere. Yeah, and it's interesting that you talked about fearfulness and aggression too. And if we can continue that a little bit, because that is a huge problem. And we know that anxiety and fear, aggression, that negatively impacts the human-animal bond. It can be a public health issue if the dogs are aggressive, biting other dogs, biting people. So can you just touch on a little bit on that, like how we can incorporate these findings with the spay-neuter and the behavior and the risks for relinquishment, breaking of the human-animal bond? Well, the increase in risk is fairly small when you're looking at these large groups of dogs. The thing that worries me slightly is that I strongly suspect from some previous studies I did that these effects are not the same in every breed. So some breeds may be much more affected than others. And that is concerning because nobody's really done any kind of crossbreed analysis of these effects. At the moment, we don't have enough information to be able to advise breeders and owners of different breeds whether it's safe to sterilize their animals. We don't have enough information to tell them what's the best age to do it if they're going to do it. 
uh, there's this tendency for people to want to do it before adolescence because dogs, like human teenagers, they go through an adolescent patch when they often become kind of difficult and a bit unruly. And unfortunately, people think that that dog's always going to be like that. But if you leave them intact, most of those dogs grow out of that phase and they settle down and they become mature adults. Like humans. Serious. I was going to say exactly just like, like Just humans. like humans, yeah. There but, was just um, a piece that published on that. I just saw it yesterday. That yeah, Lucy, that. Lucy yeah. Asher did a yeah. study, again, using the seabuck in a population of guide dogs and found very much these effects in the adolescent dogs that they went a bit off the rails for a while.